Here's my conversation with Todd Gardner. Todd is the co-founder of Request Metrics and TrackJS. He also hosts PubConf and trains web developers to build faster and more maintainable websites. Todd and I talk about why web performance is important, understanding web performance metrics, and how to improve the performance of your applications. Hope you enjoy the episode. Todd, thanks so much for being here, and I'm super excited to talk to you. I am excited too. Like this, this is an awesome invitation, and I'm excited to be doing this. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, I just want to, I think, yeah, dive into it. And for anyone who might not know you yet and who's listening, could you just introduce yourself real quick and talk about kind of what you do? Sure. So I'm a software developer, uh, an, an old software developer. I've been doing this a long time. I was a uh, independent consultant and a trainer for for many years. Um, and then I shifted into entrepreneurship and starting software businesses. So I'm uh, the co-founder and still an engineer at uh, TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring, which is a pretty popular service for monitoring front-end applications. And then more recently, I started a second business called uh, Request Metrics, which is web performance monitoring, uh, kind of helping people understand how fast are their sites behaving when they're in the hands of the real users. I also go to a bunch of conferences, and I dabbled in a thing called PubConf, which was like a software comedy event, and uh, a bunch of other things like that. So if you know me, it's probably from one of those avenues. Yeah, definitely. I think I know you from several places. I think the first place was definitely your front-end master's courses, too, which are so awesome and excellent. Um, definitely recommend anyone who's listening to to check them out. Yeah, well. front-end master's is great. It's a great organization and making great content. Absolutely. Um, so I want to get into, of course, web performance, obviously. Um, but I want to talk, I want to like throw it back a little bit more. You know, how did you first get interested in coding? I'd love to hear more about that. Oof. All right. Well, I'm a, I'm your classic stereotypical super nerd kind of thing. Um, way a very long time ago before, you know, computers could really play multiplayer games with each other easily over the internet. I ran a small thing, a small LAN party organization, which was like this group of people based uh, based in my area that would, you know, meet up and bring all of their computers together and plug them into a fast network and we'd play video games. And it got kind of popular and a bunch of other people wanted to get involved in it. So I built a little, my first little website for it that had like a registration form and it was written in Perl with CGI bin, kind of like really old stuff, but basically just take a form and stick it into a CSV file on a hard drive somewhere. So I knew who was gonna show up. Um, and that was really the first foray into like making the computer do what I wanted it to do and not just buying software from somebody else. Very cool. I honestly don't know what half those technologies were. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not commonly used anymore. <laughs> awesome. So it all just kind of went from there. You kind of realized from that you wanted to go into this as a developer. Yeah. Like making a computer do what I wanted it to do was, uh, kind of, um, a, 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 a perspective changing moment. And I spent more time with it and, uh, started getting more and more into it for many years. I just did it, you know, amateur, like I, I would write scripts to like automate the things I needed to do. And I didn't necessarily see it as a professional thing, just a, I can be really, really good at computers if I can program them to do the tasks that I don't like doing on them. Uh, but I had, uh, I had a one particular job uh, where I was in like IT operations 
And they gave me an opportunity to move to a professional software development kind of role. And so it kind of shifted from there, even though I'd been programming at that point for probably 10 years, I'd never kind of done quote unquote real programming where like I had source control and I had to write tests and all of those other sort of things. I, I before that I was mainly a, you know, kind of seat of your pants. I'm going to build this script. It's going to execute, you know, a hundred million times once, and then I'm going to throw it away and never think about it again. Um, so that's kind of my backstory. Very cool. How did you get that opportunity? You said that they kind of gave you the opportunity to shift into that role. Was it because you saw something or just the opportunity? How did it arise? Um, it was, so I'd been at a, a particular company. So this was like a manufacturing company and it was the first job I really had out of school. And uh, I worked in IT operations. I maintained Windows and Linux servers and networks and stuff like that. Um, and I was really good at it um, because unlike most people who were in you know, similar roles with me at the time, I could you know, do some basic programming and automate a lot of my tasks. And so I was bored a lot of the time because I was just really proficient at that job. Uh, and uh, even though I you know, didn't have as much work to do as a lot of other people, management always kind of like looked favorably on me because I still got all the work that they needed to have done done really quickly. Uh, and so they kind of let me dabble because of that. Uh, so I got to experiment where, wherever they kind of needed extra help, I would say, hey, I'll, can I help with that kind of thing? And they would uh, let me kind of move around between projects. Uh, so it was, it was just kind of a, I don't know, an organic transition, I guess. Awesome. Um, today, you've definitely dedicated a lot of your career to web performance. Yeah. Um, did you first get interested in web performance and yeah, what kind of led you to getting into it? So uh, many years after these first stories, uh, I was an independent consultant. Um, so I, I would move from organization to organization, uh, augmenting their teams and, you know, helping them build new projects. And in the 2010, 2011 era, uh, there were a lot of companies that were building out their first big JavaScript apps. So they like the trends at the time was you want to build a, a single page application was the uh, term at the time where we're going to build all kinds of things on the front end and it's going to talk to an API on the back end. And this is how the future is going to look. Uh, so this was the era of knockout JS and backbone JS and Angular was around, but nobody really cared about it yet. Uh, it was mainly backbone and knockout were kind of like the the libraries. And so I spent a lot of time building apps in those. The problem was, is that we would build these really ambitious and beautiful client-side applications. And to, you know, to the businesses and to the developers, everything ran great. But when you actually put it in the hands of the users, it was just crap slow. Because we were, because we were shipping like megabytes of JavaScript down to these devices that just couldn't handle it. Um, and over all kinds of crappy networks. And so that's when it first kind of occurred to me that like, oh, you know what? Like performance in a way, not in a way, like is more important than the features themselves because nobody's going to look at your features. Nobody's going to care about what your app does if it crosses some frustration boundary that the users can't get past. And so that's when I started getting more interested and focusing more on web performance um, as a, as kind of a, a critical concept of web development. 
Awesome. So it sounds like you kind of just went from there in terms of you got interested in it and started learning about it. Yeah. So once you kind of realized how important this was, I would spend a lot of time, you know, with, uh, you know, because I was a, a contractor and I could move between uh, between organizations, you know, everybody had a different kind of perspective on how, what the most important thing was to make their site fast. And so I got to work with a lot of different teams and see a lot of different points of view on it. Um, and that really helped, helped me better understand all of the different facets of web performance, because it's not just one thing. Like, it's not just about, hey, reduce the total size of your JavaScript and your site will go faster. I mean, that's one part of it, but there's lots of other ways that a site could be fast or slow that affect web performance um, as, a, as an overall concept. Can you say more on that? Um, like, what do you mean exactly uh, as an overall concept? Sure. So when, uh, when, a, when an end user says, hey, this site is slow, that's not really enough to precisely know what they mean. A site could be slow in a lot of different ways. It could be slow to start loading, like when they first click on the link or hit enter in the location bar until something first starts happening, like the first bit of, you know, they see that your server is online and they're going to see something, that part could be slow. Or it could be that you showed them something really quick, but then they're sitting there staring at loading spinners for two minutes. And that's a different kind of slow. Or it could be that, you know, that you showed them an app really fast, but as they're clicking in it, the clicks, the, your, the ability of um, the application to respond to clicks feels sluggish, like it's crossing some boundary where the users notice this delay. Or it could be that the page is just moving around, like different bits of content are dynamically being inserted and pushing other content around, which is a really common thing for a lot of websites that want to build a quote unquote portally concept. Uh, where they would have like all of these different like boxes where different content would come in and it would push the page around because as the content would load, it would be bigger than the box that uh, that was originally given to it and everything else would relay out because of it. And some users see that as being slow. Um, and there's lots of other um, application specific instances, those are just some general things that apply to lots of applications. But it could be that particular flows in, um, in, in your application could just not behave exactly as they want and the, and the end user would perceive that as a performance issue. Right, definitely, that makes sense. Um, that makes me think about, so in your, in your new course, Web Performance Fundamentals, you talk about the psychology of waiting and how if a user is waiting for things to load, um, there's all these interesting factors within there, um, like anxious waiting or bored waiting. Like you're, you know, you, I can you give the example of you're on a long car ride and you have nothing to do back before iPhones, I guess, when we had constant things to do all the time. <laughs> um, but you talk about, you know, you're bored waiting on a long car ride and you give that example of if a user is kind of bored on the page um, and things like that. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so the psychology of waiting I actually came across this from another uh, web performance consultant uh, uh, named Simon Hearn. But the original uh, concept of this actually just came from the psychology world. And it was an analysis of 
how people act to waiting in lines. So you're just waiting in line at the DMV or to order food or whatever. And what were the some common rules uh, that influenced people's thinking? And those applied really, really well to uh, web performance as well. Because in a lot of ways, uh, waiting in line in the physical world is a lot like waiting to complete your task in the digital world. Um, and so some of those rules are, like you said, bored waiting feels slower. If you have nothing to do, if you're bored and avoiding work and you're just surfing the internet and you click on some clickbait article, but it doesn't really mean anything to you, you're just bored. But if that article is slow, you're just going to lose interest really fast because it wasn't that important to you to begin with. And you're just kind of bored. You don't have anything else to do. Um, so that wait was a bigger deal to you than if something was um, already entertaining you and you are already focused on something. If you look at more, uh, uh, more important activities, like if you have get excited about an idea, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're excited about an idea and you have like some questions. And so you open up your phone to like Google some answers. And if Google doesn't respond to you quickly, you're really annoyed by that because you're excited and you want to start something. People want to start um, a task once they've worked up the energy and the excitement to do something. They don't want the technology getting in the way. Um, there's some other ones like... Um, uh, anxiety can influence performance. Uh, so if the if the task at hand is causing a lot of anxiety for the end user, weights are more infuriating to them. So if they're looking to see if um, if their mortgage was approved or if they're waiting on health results or anything that's going to cause a lot of like personal concern to the person, those kind of performance delays are feel so long because the user is all up in their head, like stressing about what the result is going to be or how they're going to move forward. Um, there's also uh, uh, whether or not the user expects to be waiting. So uh, an unexplained wait feels longer. If you're clicking through you know, a web application and you've done it 100 times before and it's always just been really fast, but this time you click it and all of a sudden you're waiting four seconds. Well, that four seconds feels a lot slower than four seconds because you don't know why you're waiting. You don't understand why is this happening. Uh, this isn't at all what the norm, uh, normal things would be. Um, and related to that is if you're uncertain about how long the wait is going to be. If you come into an app and you click on something and it says just the words loading with no progress, there's no indication of what's happening. And after about you know, 10, 12 seconds pass, you start feeling like, is it broken? Do, should I refresh the page? Yeah. Like, I, I have no idea how long I'm going to be waiting here. Um, and so that uncertainty creates, you know, more concern, more, uh, they're more aware of time passing. And overall, just a, a really good concept is that people will wait longer for something they feel is more valuable. So if you try and like put, you know, a, a broad generalized rule, like all web pages should load in four seconds or less, which is a thing that, you know, a lot of people will commonly say, that's not always true because if, uh, if it's a low value page, like let's say this is just a clickbait news site, like we're going to TMZ or we're going to, you know, Forbes or whatever, and you click on something and it takes 
four seconds to load, you might be kind of annoyed. That might feel really slow to you because that wasn't important. You were just you know, wasting time to click on something. But if you go to Gmail and you load Gmail up for the day, it often takes four, six, eight seconds to do that initial loading of the application. And nobody thinks it's slow because it's really valuable. People understand that this is a, a thing that is going to be, uh, it has a lot of interactivity. It's providing a lot of value to my day. It's a much more robust application than a piece of clickbait. Um, so people will wait and accept longer waits uh, for more valuable pieces of software. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's so interesting. I, I heard you say that, and then I thought about all the times, like the longer I'm waiting for an app, the more I realize that I care about it. Um, and I was thinking about that with Clubhouse um, in the last few months. It'll often take a while to load or I'll get an error. Um, but if there's a really good conversation, then I'll just keep coming back and I'm waiting for a while. <laughs> um, but so keeping that in mind that people will wait longer, do you sometimes need to kind of factor that in? So, okay, there's maybe a part in my application that I know they find really valuable. Um, is that ever a factor? Like, okay, maybe I can afford to be more slow here or is that a silly question? Would we never know that? It's, it's not a silly question at all. In fact, it's, it's a really good sign about, um, you know, maturity as a, as a software developer, when you start thinking about the non-technical aspects of the things that we're working on, because the non-technical aspects are super important um, in that each part of your application, if you're building a, a more complex business application, like a lot of web developers tend to build, um, there's different parts of that application that provide different amounts of value. And so thinking about like what the context is of that end user and what they're doing and how important that is should inform your other technical decisions of how long can we wait? Should we be caching this? Should we be processing it later? Um, lots of technical uh, decisions about the architecture of a system should derive from what is the user doing and what are their expectations and how long would they be willing to wait? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to ask a, another question. Um, I mean, we've kind of touched on this already. There's this question of like, why does web performance matter? Um, like, why should we care about it? And I feel like you kind of had this real world problem that made you care. And we've kind of talked about this already, right? Your user is going to get frustrated or go away and they don't like to wait. Um, but is there anything more you would add to this in terms of this question? Like maybe someone hasn't directly seen why they should care about web performance yet. Um, so what would you say to them to kind of get them to care? More. So, I mean, this is a very common question that um, uh, developers will face when they're trying to like um, sell the concept of web performance to maybe uh, business people or, or, or other other engineers that uh, might not be fully bought into it. It's like, what's the value in doing this? Why should we do this? We're busy. The backlog is huge. We got all kinds of customers coming at us. Why should we like waste a bunch of time doing this? Um, what is the point of all of it? And often developers will jump to something quantifiable. Like I need to have a number to give somebody that says, this is what, how many dollars we're going to save or whatever. And so there's lots of case studies on the internet about that, that you might've seen like uh, Amazon does them. Walmart does them about, you know, every, you know, hundred milliseconds they can shave off of their load time, you know, increases their conversion rate by 0.2% or something. I don't know. I was just making that up. It's some, it's some number that they've published. And there's lots of these case studies for all kinds of different industries. 
usually the most compelling of these case studies do come from that e-commerce space where they can directly quantify like a user session uh, equals this many dollars. But there's all kinds of them from, from many industries. What's important to understand the, about all of those case studies though, because if you, if you hang your hat on, uh, on this case study is why we have to do it and there's no other reason, uh, it's gonna fall apart because all of those case studies have two big problems when you wanna apply them generally. The first is that that's not a linear line. It's not about every 100 milliseconds saves you 2% conversion rate. It's within this tiny range where they decreased it from two, two seconds to 1.8 seconds save them. But that's not a straight line all the way down. Like if you got it down to zero, you would not be making infinite amounts of money. Um, as such, if you slowed it all the way down to you know four seconds, the amount of money would not go to zero. Uh, there are upper and lower bounds to how fast and slow a site can be where, where it still matters. And sometimes you have to make a performance improvement big enough to matter or it's not worth doing. Um, a common thing that uh, comes from the psychology world again is the 20% rule, wherein if you can't affect your performance by 20% compared to what the user expects or compared to a competitor, most users won't notice. So like if you're trying to compete on speed, like our, our store is, is way faster than target.com, you should totally shop at our stuff. Um, well, unless you're 20% faster, most people won't notice. So if you're just like a few, like a millisecond faster or 50 milliseconds faster, chances are nobody cares yet. So there's a, a bar that you need to cross over it. The other important thing to consider with uh, when you're thinking about these case studies is that causation doesn't equal, or correlation does not equal causation. Uh, and by that, I mean, they're saying that when our performance got faster, we made more money or we were more successful or whatever. And those are correlated. They're not necessarily caused. The internet is a really complex system with all kinds of things going on. And depending on exactly how you measure things, you can make all kinds of things look like they are causing increased sales. Uh, there could be that, you know, you compared weekdays versus weekends. It could be that last week everybody was on break and shopping less. It could be that any number of things that happened could affect you, the, or the uh, success rate of your website that is not directly related to performance. And so what's more, a better way to think about it, to sell the idea than, than just the case studies is by drawing on people's own feelings, by telling stories about like frustrating user experiences on the web um, and connecting that when you've had a bad experience, how frustrated are you? How more likely are you to leave? How likely are you to maybe switch apps to a competitor or abandon the site or abandon your shopping cart or whatever? And connecting that to people's individual experiences rather than looking for objective truth in numbers uh, tends to have a much better success rate to swaying people to, to, to pay attention to this. Um, an additional, you know, reason that's been thrown into the ring more recently is that uh, uh, many outside organizations, browsers and search engines and stuff like that are prioritizing performance 
and as part of how well they're going to work with you. So, for example, a slow site is going to start um, having penalties in their search rankings uh, starting next month, starting in, in May. Um, and Google said, you know what? Sites that are slow are less, um, have a poorer user experience. And a poorer user experience means that that search result was less relevant. So we're going to start penalizing them. So slower sites are going to lose page rank to faster sites. So if for no other reason, if you care about search rank, which I mean, not all sites do. If you're building an internet application, maybe you don't care about this. But if you're building any kind of public facing business, you really care about how well you show up in Google. So Google says be fast. We kind of have to be fast. Yeah, that is so interesting to me that they decided that. Um, that just kind of blows my mind a little bit that, that if you're a slower site, then you're going to actually disappear uh, in a way. <laughs> well, they're not saying that you're going to, you know, they're going to kick you off the index entirely. And it's not like it's just one factor. They're not, they're not sorting the web based on performance, but mm -hmm. they're letting it be an influencing factor. So the PageRank algorithm is a closely guarded secret and nobody actually knows, you know, all the little bits of it. What they're saying is that they've always had uh, um, some factor of user experience influenced um, PageRank. Previously, it was whether or not you used HTTPS uh, and your site was secure or if it was mobile friendly or um, the total size of the document. Um, those were all previous factors that did already influence PageRank. What they're saying now is that we're going to let this other thing, we've been capturing performance numbers, and we're going to let those numbers also influence PageRank. So it's not that if you have a slow, if you have hands down the most valuable site for a particular topic, and it's a little slow, you're okay. You're probably okay. You're, you're probably not going to lose out. But if you're in a competitive environment where like there's multiple players jockeying for who's who's in the top three and your site gets a little bit slower, you might slip out of that top three. You might slip to the bottom of the page or into page two in oblivion. You don't know. So it's a bit of a black box of what's going to happen. And probably shouldn't roll the dice. Probably should at least take the easy wins of performance and make your site as fast as 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 it's reasonably able to do. Yeah, I like that. You shouldn't roll the dice. <laughs> um, we've been talking a lot about web performance and its importance. Um, and I want to ask you more about, you know, how can we measure our web performance? Um, you know, keeping in mind how important this is. Yeah. How you measure web performance has been a topic that's changed a lot over, over the time that I've been like working on web performance. Um, it used to be that there was one main metric that most people cared about, and it was uh, page load. So uh, a measurement of time from when the navigation started till the page load event occurs. So you know the if you listen to window.onload and capture a time marker at that point, that's the time. That's the time they're talking about uh, with page load. And at, in the early days, that was fine because websites weren't all that complex and they weren't all that asynchronous. Um, but as you know, JavaScript has picked up and more and more uh, business logic is moving out into the web, that page load event becomes more and more meaningless um, and is easier and easier to manipulate that metric if that's what's being measured. And by that, I mean, um, 
you can choose when all kinds of asynchronous work is done. So for example, a lot of single page applications in the early days would basically ship a blank HTML document down to the browser and then load JavaScript and then make a bunch of Ajax requests and assemble the whole page based on that. And that totally blew away the old metric because when page load fired, the document was a white page. Like literally <laughs> nothing had happened yet. Oh my goodness. And so, yeah, so you can't, me like you can't measure that as done. That's, not, that's nowhere close to done. A lot of sites in the content space also use this kind of pattern to manipulate their own um, metrics internally, where if they were being measured on how fast their page would load, they would just, you know, defer things till after page load and make make their site faster in terms of um, in terms of how it was measured, while not actually changing the end user experience. And so, in the last couple of years, um, Google has been pushing the, the primary like source of all of this work has been pushing to create new metrics to describe um, whether the different ways that a user might feel a page is slow. And they branded these the core web vitals, which are um, really a superior way of measuring the page, but they're much more complicated because there's a lot of different things they're measuring. Um, and so you'll see these if you run like a Chrome Lighthouse report or if you run Google PageSpeed Insights and you get like a score number. The score is like this, you know, rolled up kind of concept of how well you're doing in a percentage wise. But the numbers that make it up are these core web vitals, which are the first, or the, um, first contentful paint or FCP, largest contentful paint or LCP, the cumulative layout shift, or CLS, and first input delay, or FID. Um, these are the, the four most important ones, the ones that Google's going to be using to decide PageRank, and the biggest influencing factors to your Lighthouse and, and PageSpeed Insight scores. Um, and each one of these is measuring something subtly different. So um, the first two, which are about contentful paints, uh, that, which is a weird word. All of these words are just weird. Like it's <laughs> hard to say. In, <laughs> yeah, like you're talking to somebody who's like not in the web performance circle, and they're like, "What the heck are you talking about? I, that that <laughs> is weird grammar, and it doesn't mean anything." And that's all true, and it's weird. But I don't. That's what they called. Them. But so contentful paints. A contentful paint is is uh, a loop that the browser itself is taking where it renders something to the screen that shows something to the user. It could be anything. It could be, you know, this, the, the layout of the page. It could be an image in the corner. It could be anything. But like whenever the browser does a contentful paint, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about. And so there's two important metrics there, the first one and the largest one. And they, they're trying to measure different things. The first contentful paint is trying to measure how fast your, um, your servers, your infrastructure, your backend is able to deliver the first meaningful amount of data to the browser. It's not quite time to first byte, which is also something that's commonly measured, but this is trying to get more towards the user perspective on that, is how fast can your server get something out the door so the user knows that their request has been received and they're going to get something. Because before that happens, they're staring at a white screen and 
they'll get frustrated and abandon. The largest contentful paint, on the other hand, is trying to understand when when do you get the most important content out? When can you when can the user actually see the thing that they arrived uh, they, that they are coming to your site for? Now, there's no good programmatic way of figuring out what the most important content is. So largest is just kind of a proxy measurement for that. When does the biggest thing on your screen render? Um, and by you know common user experience guidelines, generally the largest thing should be the most important thing. Like it's the, the main article or the main headline image or um, the product image or whatever, you know, whatever, but it's whatever the largest paint is by pixel area fires an event and says, this was the largest contentful paint to date. This is when we think the, the most important content was rendered. So these are two different time measurements based on when we first get something out the door and when we get the most important thing out the door. Mm -hmm. um, cumulative layout shift is a little different because it's not measuring time. It's measuring kind of distance and impact. Layout shifts are those irritating things where the screen is redrawing and reorganizing itself because dynamic content came into play. Uh, BestBuy.com used to have horrible cumulative layout shift if you ever shopped there, where like all these things would like pop in and bars would move and everything. Um, there was a lot of content sites like uh, Kotaku for many years had like really crappy layout shift. Um, and it was just really frustrating to use because you felt like the page was loaded and the thing that you arrived for is there, but it's just so jumpy that it's hard to use. A lot of news sites actually still do this with loading dynamic ads as you're scrolling through. So like you're scrolling, you're reading a story or whatever, and as you move from one paragraph to the next, all of a sudden an ad sh gets shoved in. And you're like, wait, where was I reading? Like I, I can't pick up the next line because the whole page kind of like reorganized when this ad got shoved in. That's layout shifts. And so cumulative layout shifts is just saying, I'm going to add together the impact of every single one of these events that have happened and give you a score. Um, if you go out to Google's you know, authoritative site about this, which is web.dev, um, they talk about exactly how they calculate this. But it's essentially a percentage of how much of the visible screen um, was moved and how far did it move. Um, and so it's based on a percentage where one would be like, everything is always moving all the time and zero is nothing moved. Um, Google tends to say you should have it less than 0.1 or less than, than 10% uh, to be anywhere good. The final metric that they care about is this first input delay, which is probably the hardest one to understand. Um, but it's also the least often measured because it requires a user to, it, to interact with a page for you to get a number. So a lot of pages where uh, our public internet, you, you come in and the user bounces out, you won't even have a first input delay metric. What this is trying to measure is how busy is the web browser when the user thinks it's done? So when the user clicks on something on your page, what the browser is supposed to do is fire a click event so that if you've written a JavaScript handler, you can pick that up. And if you haven't, it goes on to the default action, navigating, toggling, whatever that click would have done naturally. What first input delay is measuring is how long does it take the browser 
to fire that event. Not how long your code run. It has nothing to do with how performant your code is. It is how busy is the browser in waiting in, um, in getting that event out. And why that's important is that a lot of uh, websites ship just way too much JavaScript. And when you ship too much JavaScript, the browser gets really busy downloading and parsing and executing that in the background. And so if you've shown the user, here's your content, begin interacting. And the user thinks, great, I'm gonna start doing something. But in the background, the browser is still parsing obnoxious amounts of JavaScript. When the user clicks, they, the browser can't handle it right away. It's busy, it's doing other things. And so what it's trying to uh, enforce is that when you show the user that your page can be interacted with, it better be ready to be interacted with. Don't try and game the system by loading all kinds of things in the background and consuming all of the resources of the system. When it's done, it needs to be done and you need to be ready to run. Um, and so this is, is kind of a checksum on a lot of the other metrics that you haven't manipulated your performance to be better than it is by sacrificing uh, interactivity performance. Right, I see what you're saying. So it's, they think the page is done loading, they can go about their, their business, do what they wanna do, um, but then things are still slow. And so I don't see them feeling kind of tricked in a way. You think you can start doing stuff, but we still have all this other stuff going around. And so, so right. is figuring out how can you make sure that when things are done, they're actually done or, or close to done? Right, right, exactly. So if, you're, if you feel like this site should have a loading screen because you just need to pull so much stuff down and get it ready before the user can interact, then you better have a loading screen that like delays the user and, and really you know, shows the user that you're not ready to interact with yet. If you just show the user the content and you're not ready, like you've got stuff happening in the background still, that site's going to feel slow to the user because it just won't be interactive for the first five, 10 seconds, however long it's gonna take you to load your JavaScript. Absolutely. So kind of keeping in mind these metrics that you've been going over, like what are some of the tools that we can use to you know, look at our site's metrics and, and figure that out? Well, so I've mentioned this a few times, but Google is, is the primary push behind this. So there's there's a couple of, I mean, Google's huge and most people use Chrome these days. And so it's, it's a big deal, but you do need to remember that the core web vitals are only measured in Chrome. No other browser supports this at all. So when you, when you have these numbers, this is saying how fast will Chrome load your page? Not how fast Safari or Edge, or, well, I mean Edge now that Edge is on Chrome will, but if an old Edge or Internet Explorer or Firefox or Safari, none of those browsers will produce the numbers at all. Um, so you, you kind of have to like think about that a little bit that you were sampling your overall web performance. But there's great tools within that ecosystem to understand how Chrome does it. Uh, from the developer side, you have Lighthouse, which is built into the Chrome developer tools. Uh, you can open up Lighthouse on any page and, and, and run it in either desktop or mobile with all kinds of different filtering mechanisms and try and generate a report. Uh, you can also run that online from Google servers uh, using PageSpeed Insights. Um, where you type in a URL and it'll crawl your page and produce a lighthouse report. And those are both great. They can, they can give you an idea of what's happening. Uh, but these are both what's called a synthetic test or a lab test, is you're measuring how fast your computer or how fast Google's server can load your page and do something. 
it's not measuring the end user experience. It's not measuring when an end user hits the page with their device on their network, how fast their experience was. To do that, you need something called field data or real user monitoring to, to, under, to gather these sort of metrics from your actual users and aggregate those together. Now, Google has a tool for that. Um, uh, some months ago, they uh, put something in Chromium called uh, the Chrome User Experience Report, where they're actually aggregating data from like the top million pages on the internet. If the, if the end user uses Chrome, it's gathering these anonymous statistics together and publishing data. So you can look up Crux, C-R-U-X, and get access to some of this data. Now, it's pretty aggregated. It's pretty high level. Like, you can see how well a domain is performing on average over the last 28 days and a handful of other, like, smaller things. But it does give you this high-level information. If you run PageSpeed Insights, it has a little blurb, I think, on the top where it has a summary of the Chrome user experience data. But if you want something more real-time, Google doesn't offer anything like that. Like you need something, if you're gonna make uh, some kind of concerted effort to improve your core web vitals and you want to know, did this thing I released yesterday improve things? You need something a little bit more real time. So you'll need to either gather those metrics yourself um, uh, by pulling them out. Then there's some libraries that can help you do that. You'd need to ship that data back to your server and aggregate it and that sort of thing. And we talk about that a little bit in the front end master's course. There's even a little sample thing on, on how we do that. Um, or there's a lot of services that do that. This is one of the things that request metrics that I work on does um, is we're trying to be a uh, like kind of respond to these real time changes in your performance and aggregate that data together in a way that's easier to understand and kind of take some of the statistics out of it to just show more practical numbers. Awesome, definitely. Um, and Todd, was there anything that I kind of missed that you want to add to this discussion? Maybe a question that um, you were thinking about? Yeah, yeah, there, there's one thing that I think is a really important concept that we didn't quite, uh, I didn't quite work into our conversation. And it's um, once you've decided that you're going to work on something, that you're going to improve a particular metric or do a performance improvement on a particular site, and you're trying to figure out how to do it. There's lots of tactics on, you know, loading early or loading late or reducing size or et cetera. But all of the tactics of web performance come down to a simple, like one simple idea, which is find a way to do fewer things. It's the only way to make things go faster is you can't actually make the computer process bits faster than it does. You need to find a way for the computer to process less bits. How can you make it do less by remembering what it did the last time or by removing the things that aren't as important or by making the things that are not important run later or by compressing them in, uh, in such a way but if you boil everything down to how can I make the computer do less things, that can be a, a guide in understanding what tactics are most appropriate to solve this particular problem. I'm trying to fix this metric. Here's all the things the computer does as part of this metric. How do I remove some of them? That's your answer. 
Yeah, and I also wanted to kind of shout out your course, which I feel like I, uh, I kind of forgot to earlier. We, we only mentioned it once or twice, but you have an awesome new course on Front End Masters called Web Performance Fundamentals. Um, I just took it and I thought it was really awesome. And so definitely encourage everyone here to go and check it out. Um, Thanks. I'm so glad that you liked it. Um, yeah, so this was a, um, the second course I've done with Front End Masters. Um, and I'm pretty proud of it. I think it's pretty cool. Um, we talk, uh, unlike a lot of other performance courses, they're focused much more on, um, on the tactics themselves. Like it just goes through, here's a thing you can do, and here's a thing you can do, and here's a thing you can do. Um, I try and focus more on um, understanding why you would do performance and when do you care? When do you need to care? Like focusing on business objectives and that sort of thing. Before we get down to, all right, here's a business objective and a performance problem and here's the tactics that we would use to solve it in this situation, which I hope is helpful to people. Todd, I just wanted to say thanks so much for you know joining me and talking to me. This was an awesome conversation. And for anyone who's listening and they want to connect with you, um, how can they reach you or where can they go to follow you? Uh, so I, I, I'm pretty responsive on Twitter. Um, I don't read Twitter as much anymore because it's depressing. Um, <laughs> but I do respond when people mention me. I'm at Todd H. Gardner. Or if you want to do something more private, you can email me directly. You can get me Todd at requestmetrics.com or Todd at trackjs.com. They go to the same place. Um, I spend most of my time writing when I'm publishing things online. Uh, I do have my own site, but it hasn't been updated in like eight years. Uh, most of the time I'm publishing a blog. It's uh, If it's about performance, I publish it at requestmetrics.com. And if it's about errors, it's at trackjs.com. But so those are, are where I'm publishing things. And thank you so much for inviting me and having me on.